Ford K9 LLC. Are you looking for a handler school, trainer school, or attend one of our one-week development courses for dogs, handlers, or trainers? Are you in one of the various detection dog scent sports doing nose work or scent work? We have classes and seminars for you as well. We offer trainer classes as well as seminars for many of you handlers. Ford K9 is not just in Vegas, but we can come to you with many of our seminars like K9 Cognition, Detection Using Cognition, The Trust Momentum, and many more. Ford K9 also offers fully trained detection dogs. Contact us. We have access to a variety of breeds of dogs that Cameron custom trains to meet your detection needs. All dogs come with a handler school when you pick up your canine as well. For more information, go visit our website, www.fordcanine.com. Welcome to Talking Sense, the podcast where we discuss all things detection dogs. Broadcasting from Scent City at the Ford Canine Training Center in Las Vegas, here's your host, Cameron Ford. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canine's Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford. Before we get going to this episode, like usual, just going to go over, you know, what's been going on, some topics in detection and things like that. So first, I want to thank somebody who I've now partnered with with some puppy raising, and that is... Kelsey over at Grassroots Canine Maryland. She was just out here, delivered Canine Logan to us, who's a wonderful, amazing high drive chocolate lab that thinks he's part Malinois, I'm pretty sure. Really awesome dog, comes from her breeding, and she has raised this dog really well, the whole entire litter. Uh, there's many individuals who listen to this podcast that actually have siblings to Logan. But I really wanted to reach out and thank Kelsey for doing that. So if you're in the East Coast near Maryland, reach out to Kelsey. You can find her on social media. Just look up Grassroots Canine Maryland. And you will find her and her many videos and photos of her dogs, puppies, and training. Uh, go check her out. Outside of that, we also have some additional new puppies, two more spaniels, another working cocker named Ammo, and then a Springer named Bolt. These dogs, uh, again, I got from the same place I got Quill, facility up in Utah, Rockies Kennel. Wow. The dogs that uh, are bred here at that facility and what they do are really, really great dogs, sound genetics. <laughs> I have a hard time leaving there, not leaving with multiple dogs each time I'm there. But stay tuned for a lot of the uh, videos and information that we're going to share on the puppy raising process, the selection to detection process that I'm sharing on social media. And soon, on the new revised Ford K9 website, which will come out probably this fall, where we'll have many of these videos, online classes, and things of that nature available to you guys to start doing more learning and sharing of training, specifically to raising detection dogs. So be on the lookout for that. No major topics this time. This podcast is a really fun mashup between myself and my friends over at K9 Conservation. 
that podcast is, you know, more geared to canine conservation, conservation handlers, but it was a really good conversation that we had. So I'm not going to hold it up any longer. I hope everybody enjoys this podcast. And as usual, always feel free to reach out to me. I will use my personal email address, Cameron at FordK9.com. So Cameron at FordK9.com. Send me messages, questions. Um, If you have a a guest you would love for me to interview, send me that name and contact info. I've been expanding a lot of the podcast to various disciplines. We have another conservation podcast coming out. I've got a podcast with Mike Ritland. I've got a podcast with Mike Suttle. I've got a podcast with Bart Rogers and another gentleman. We study the history of sporting breeds. So a lot of great episodes coming up. So stay tuned for those. Please review, subscribe to our podcast channel on all podcast formats or just go to the FordK9.com website. You can click on podcast and get all our podcasts there. So everybody enjoy this episode. Okay, Cameron Ford, Jeffrey Milner, welcome to the Conservation Canine Podcast. So uh, it's taken us a little while to get on the phone here, um, you know, but uh, Cameron, look, we've been talking for a while about getting on the show together and doing a bit of a mashup. So it's great um, that we've been able to happen. And this is largely thanks to Jeff, who got in touch uh, to tell me about you know, the newly formed Conservation Canine Officers Association. So today we've got with us uh, Cameron Ford. So who, for those of you who don't know Cameron Ford's name, I'd be very surprised, but uh, he's the host of the amazing Canines Talking Sense podcast. You want to say hi, Cameron? Uh, hello, and thank you very much for uh, bringing me on your podcast here. And I mean, like like we were talking before we went on here, it's it's really awesome to know that the Canines Talking Sense podcast has you know inspired people like yourself to go out and do the Canine Conservation podcast. So super excited to be here. Like you said, it, definitely thanks to Jeff. Milner for putting us together, and I'll kind of hand this off to you and Jeff. But again, thank you for having me on. Yeah, and no, I was delighted, mate. And Jeff, and so uh, president of the Conservation Canine Officers Association, canine handler or you know, conservation officer within the Indiana Department of Natural Resources. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. No, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to come on. So, um, yeah, so look, it's probably worth just giving a little bit of background for everybody. So I guess around around the table, maybe start with you, Jeff. Do you want to talk about kind of what you do and how you got into it and all that sort of stuff? Well, I work for the Indiana Department of Natural Resources, Law Enforcement Division, a.k.a. an Indiana Conservation Officer. I've been doing that for 28 years. Of that 28 years being an officer, I've been a canine handler for 24 of those. Our canine program started back in 1997. A few years later, I actually became the coordinator. Since then, we've grown the program from two dogs to 13 canine units uh, spread out across Indiana. And that's kind of how I got into the canine business, so to speak, or the canine trainer's business. That's great. Thank you. Uh, Cameron? Yeah, my turn. <laughs> yeah, your turn. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I've uh, been. I have had. A, I've been lucky enough to have a pretty diverse uh, background in what I did. I'm now in my 27th year of doing canine. I was lucky. I grew up next to a, a guy, a guy named Bob Gailey, who actually recently passed away. He was my mentor, and he started a police dogs in Central Florida area, probably a little bit bigger than that. 
But anyhow, that rubbed off on me. I ended up getting into the canine community thanks to him. Found my way into the United States Air Force. Got lucky to be stationed in Germany, which then allowed me to travel all over Europe for a number of years, learning all the different programs, and really kind of ignited my passion even further in the dog community. And since then, it's been I've been a police officer in the United States. Started off in Florida, then ended up over in Texas. Got to work a really awesome dog, my last dog, Kino, in in uh, Texas. Um, and then, uh, you know, during the height of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, it was training and prepping a lot of teams deploying worldwide, but specifically to that region, which then, after time goes by, landed me in a uh, new job as the instructor over at the Navy SEAL program under a contract with a company called Cobra Canine. Uh, a good friend of mine, Jeff Franklin, we had found each other. And then he brought me on to that contract. And that was one of the coolest jobs as a uh, canine trainer to be able to put yourself really into a, a position, you know, to to test your limits. You know, what's required and what's needed for these dogs is really difficult. So you got to uh, up your game. And when I was there, I had the opportunity to get into a lot of the research side of things. I, you know, reached out to different programs, specifically when it was Duke University, learning canine cognition. And that just was like a wormhole. I went from there to working with Nathan Hall, which you've had on your podcast yeah. with uh, – doing olfaction research and doing things like of that nature. So that had me really delve deeper into what I would call the more nerdy side of the dog world and ended up as I my contract ended with the Navy SEAL program, I was in Las Vegas and then really just started developing and becoming uh, heavily influenced in the detection dog world and really just wanted to share a lot of the stuff that was geeking me out, you know, I was really into learning the hows and the whys and all of that good stuff that just uh, lit a fire under me. And that's kind of how I've been sharing everything I do with everybody else now, like you said, through the podcast, through the webinars, schools, etc. That was really my detection aspect. I worked Various detection dogs. I've worked bomb dogs, drug dogs. You know, now I'm training specialty dogs in electronics detection and bed bugs and things like that. So that's a long answer to your question, but you know, I, that's how I got into you know really focusing heavily in detection, which I was so glad to see conservation start getting uh, a lot more attention through the work that you're doing and, and stuff that Jeff's doing with the Canine Conservation Association. Yeah, no, that's cool. That's cool. Now, as we're doing a mashup here, Cameron, did you want me to give a little bit of a background about myself? Absolutely, um, please. Yeah, 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 because okay. we're going to be sharing it. So now your turn yeah, to be exactly on the spot. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. So, so so my background primarily in in hunting, the shooting dogs. That's so I was training, you know, professional dogs. Um, yeah, for the shooting field, for gamekeepers, you know, um, and all of that sort of stuff. Got really interested in the sort of detection aspect. You know, when you're watching these gun dogs going around and you can just see them working in different ways you know you've got little cockers with their nose to the ground and you've got the springers with their noses up in the air and i got really really fascinated with with that and thought oh you know i'm going to move more into the you know, profession detection field and so i went around and i tried various things and i 
you know, I tried looking at the uh, the explosives and the narcotics and the yeah you know, the bits and pieces, and it was all very interesting. But uh, my original kind of degree was in environmental science, and I kind of started thinking, oh, you know, dogs could be used for this purpose, and and then lo and behold, I discovered they already were, and so I went off and yeah you know, did some training with Louise Wilson, um, who's also been on the Conservation Canine podcast from. Uh, Conservation Canine Consultancy in the UK, who's extremely, extremely good, has been doing this sort of stuff for a very long time. She's very much a pioneer, kind of in Europe, of conservation detection. So I did a lot of uh, a lot of work with her, and then I returned back home um, to Australia. So I'm back in uh, back from the UK now. I'm back in Queensland. I'm on the east coast of Australia, mm-hmm. and um, I've got my uh, my working dogs here, so I've got a couple of Spaniels, one of which I brought back from the UK with me, so very, very strong breeding in uh, as a gun dog, initially, and then my, my Springer is a bit younger, um, I've got from a very good breeder called Rangham Kennels over here, and I've been training him up, and uh, we specialise primarily, operationally at least, in invasive species detection, so over here in Australia, we've got an awful lot of very critically endangered species and ones that don't exist anywhere else in the world in any way, shape or form. Um, but we've got, also got a lot of introduced predators. So we've got a lot of European fox, you know, wild dogs, horses, goats, camels, you know, pigs, everything you can mention. And so there's actually a big demand and I spend a lot of my time with my guys out and about in the bush finding fox dens so we can conduct fox control or finding wild dog resting areas so we can do wild dog control. Yeah, and all of that sort of stuff. But um, like I was saying to you before we go on air, Cameron, my uh, my inspiration really for starting the Conservation Canine Podcast came from you know, the gift from your Canine Talking Sense podcast. And I thought, oh, that's such a great way of finding out more because I had such a an appetite to learn, you know, from the best people. I thought, what's the best way of me getting in touch with the people that are doing the coolest work you know, around the world mm-hmm. and, you know, legitimately having a useful conversation with them. And I thought, well, you know, I can, I can do a podcast. <laughs> I mean, yep. won't be as good as Cameron's, but I can do a podcast. Oh, And so, yes, yeah, so I started reaching out to people and I was very lucky to get some of the real um, heavyweights, you know, so, so the guys from, you know, from Working Dogs for Conservation um, and from the rogue detection teams there in the US and Louise over in the UK and Nathan down at Texas Tech. And I, I managed to get these uh, really, really amazing kind of specialists and you know, in my earlier interviews, which was great for me. And I've just found I've learned so much. And, and having a resource, I guess, for – yeah, because conservation detection is still such a small – Part it's growing rapidly, but you know, there's been it's, it's still in, in its very uh, yeah, in, in its infancy, I guess. And um, you know, being able to tap into these guys and, and bring their knowledge together into one resource, and and that's what I found with your camera with your podcast, Cameron, as well. Quite often, if I'm trying to think through a challenge, if I want to you know, if I've got a particularly complex search I need to train a dog for, or a particular kind of indication I've got to shape for some reason or whatever one of the places I come to is your podcast, you know, and I listen back through, you know, through, through previous episodes, looking for some ideas, you know, that might help me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's what I wanted to do with the conservation canal one as well and just make the experts and their expertise more accessible um, to everyone. Absolutely. So, uh, no, it, yeah. it's, it's really good. I mean, that's the beauty of the, how our world is evolving. There's, between social media, YouTube, and now podcasts, the sharing of information is much easier than it used to be. 
And we all know, uh, especially, you know, we've all done this a long time. There are a lot of beliefs about any type of dog training that are entrenched in areas. And now with that sharing of information, you right, wrong, or indifferent, things get challenged. There's a lot of information that's now shared via the um, data and research that is done by individuals like we, we talked about, Nathan, Dr. Hall, and Dr. DeGrief and other ones. And that is what's kind of moving us forward. And everybody hears me say it frequently. It's a renaissance period in detection. And it happens mm. by this type of format where the information is shared more freely. We engage in conversation. We can respectfully debate and agree or disagree about something because at the end of the day, the th here are things that are very important. Every dog is different and what people have experienced is different. And that's what yeah. kind of drives these, you know, strong beliefs. And, and, and sometimes, you know, we could be 90% of the same when it comes to what we do, but we will argue to the death about that 10% that is different. And, but to that new handler, that 10% seems like a hundred percent, because when you hear these trainers talk about why or why they do something or why this happens, then you know, this is something that we struggle with. So we, we have to learn how to respectfully understand each other. And we have different experiences and those experiences drive us. But thank goodness for things like social media podcasts that help us share that information and potentially rethink something because of, of, of an old, you know, something that we just always done because we've always done it that way. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. So, so Jeff, I wanted to have a bit of a chat um, just really around the work that, uh, that you guys do you know, within Natural Resources as a conservation officer because it's not something I'm very familiar with. I understand when I was doing a little bit of prep for this chat that there's 31 states over there in the US that have canine programs working you know, to you know, within fish and wildlife, which we don't really have here in Australia. There's you know, there's a few smatterings of of, of places and people working, but it's, the use of dogs is you know in that field is really not that well done or understood or um or traditionally been used. So I wanted to find out a little bit more about uh, how what does the day to day job entail? Well, what are, what are you doing and and so on? Well, you know with. Over here in the States, all 50 states, you know, have a fish and wildlife law enforcement agency, you know, whether their title is conservation officer, game warden, conservation police, you know, and basically our job is to enforce the fish and wildlife rules and regulations, you know, whichever state you're in. But over the last several years, you know, 31 states now actually have a canine program, you know, dedicated to protecting the natural resources. You know, they vary across the board. It's not necessarily a new concept in the United States. I mean, it's fairly recent. Uh, new York was the first agency to have a program that dates back to 1978. But since then, and more so in the last 10 years, more states have realized the benefit of having a canine program, you know, to help protect the natural resources. You know, just recently graduating in 2021, was five officers from Missouri. You know, they're the newest state to join the ranks. And it's continuing to grow. And a lot of the states that have recently started a program are already expanding because they see the value of, of having this investigative tool. You know, whether it's for man tracking, 
doing the wildlife detection, you know, or the article searches, a lot of administrations are realizing, wow, this is a manpower savings tool that is benefiting our department, especially, you know, here in the States, uh, most of our fish and wildlife agencies are struggling with numbers as well as all law enforcement almost now in the United States. So, so, so really, if you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sort of comes back or comes from from hunting originally? Does it come from, you know, just managing bag limits and making sure people are doing the right thing according to their tags? And is that where it's kind of, is, is that where the bulk of the work is from or is it looking for endangered species or, you know, things like that? For most of our law enforcement agencies, it does come from enforcing the laws, yeah. uh, you know, to prevent poaching, uh, locating. I'll just use Indiana for an example. And we're not the only state that has dogs detecting ginseng. But, you know, mm -hmm. anytime, and you're well aware of this, anytime you put value on a natural resource, wildlife, yeah. it's going to get exploited. So for Indiana, one of our things that gets exploited is ginseng. We have a season to help protect it. You cannot dig on state or federal land, but because of the value of the ginseng, guys are going to dig it whenever they can and mm -hmm. sell it. You know, yeah. so that, you know, one of the things that, especially here in Southern Indiana, that we work hard on, whether it's tracking the guy that's out trespassing, stealing, which basically theft, because they do not get permission to go on private property owner's land, or whether it's detecting it, you know, on a search warrant or a vehicle search. You know, so those are just some examples. Um, now, some other states do get involved in, you know, the, the research, but in general, that usually translates to the biologist side of their department. Yeah. Now, Jeff, I have a question. So, you know, conservation, as we we're talking about with canines, is growing quite a bit all over the world. And, and uh, like James was saying, you know, Australia has a, a very unique ecosystem with species. And, and I would say, James, this, this goes for you too, but I'll start off with Jeff. How are you seeing the civilian side of canine conservation increasing? So, like, obviously, in the, um, drug world or bomb world, there's also civilian companies who have dogs that assist in detection of explosive narcotics and so forth. Is that starting to happen in conservation? And how do you see that moving forward? I think it'll continue to explode. You know, I'm not necessarily in the, the conservation civilian world. I've kind of been enmeshed with, with it because of our partnership or the CCO or Conservation Canine Officers Association, CCOAs, backing from Working Dogs for Conservation. You know, Working Dogs for Conservation is the reason that we have the Conservation Canine Officers Association. So I'm getting more enmeshed with it. But to answer your question, it is going to continue to grow leaps and bounds, especially with uh, the illegal trafficking of wildlife species you know, continuing to grow. Actually, it went from second to third most illegally traded objects in the world. So we did lose one, but still it is it is huge. So I believe that the private sector is going to continue to grow. Uh, for example, here in Indiana, we're starting to get a lot of the wind farms, 
you know, so there's a lot of research on the amount of bird fatalities, bat fatalities, you know, so I think it's going to continue to grow by leaps and bounds. Yeah. And then, and James, what do you see over on, on the Australian side? Yeah, yeah, very much the same. I think um, from a state and federal kind of government perspective, the the use of dogs traditionally has been involved mostly in biosecurity. Um, yes, from a conservation perspective, you know, just trying to stop the uh, the invasive species coming in, you know, through the borders. But over the past few years, there's been massive growth in the number of kind of civilian organisations popping up and doing the work, which is yeah, which is fantastic from one perspective, but it also presents some challenges from another perspective. You know, because there are perceived low barriers to entry profession, and yeah, because everybody yeah likes to do it, they think it's uh, very good, and there's a lot of well-meaning people out there. Um, the problem is that the dog as a survey tool within science is still yeah, it's still in its in its infancy. And there's still a lot of people that don't necessarily trust the dog's ability you know, when, when doing the searches. And so if you've got inexperienced dogs or poorly trained dogs paired with inexperienced handlers, you know, doing highly visible threatened species detection work, for example, there's, some, there's a lot of risks there to the reputation of the sector. And so that's part of the big challenge that I see over here is that you know we want to get more people in we want to get more people working in this field i mean with the recent bushfires for example you know wiping out massive amounts of koala habitat and so on you having dogs that could get get around those areas and find koalas so those koalas could be rescued and so on yeah that's amazing great work but we've got to try and get some form of professional standards or something whether informal or formal you know within the within the industry just to support the the or, or just strengthen the validity of the dog you know as a survey method and so that's what i'm really concentrating on over here i guess apart from my operational work um we're now sort of starting to run some camps and so on for for people who are interested in conservation detection work things like that but just to give them a starting point into the into the industry you know, just to tell them all the things that we wish we knew when we got started, make sure they're aware of the things that are important and less important, and the differences between conservation detection and sport scent work, for example, or even, you know, scent work that happens in terms of in a military context or whatever. I mean, as you're both very, very well aware, conservation detection is its own weird beast because you're working in such diverse and often challenging habitats and terrains. And so kind of making sure everybody understands that and understands how you need to think about these things, I think is really, is really important. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The standards part of it is also uh, something I'm working a lot with here in the States and all the different various uh, detection disciplines. I'm I, I'm lucky. I sit on a uh, dogs and sensors committee for the American Association of Forensic Sciences, and it's it's a multi-leveled process of creating and writing either best practices or and or standards for all different types of detection dog aspects. And you bring up another very big point, which is. A lot of people who love working with their dogs may start off, let's say, typically in sport, but they've always had this urge or this burning in them to, I want to do more than just be a sport dog. I want to go yeah. do something for real. And they either find their way into search and rescue or now as conservation is growing uh, quite a bit, they're finding their way into conservation. And I'm 
I always engage in conversation with everybody as they do this is you you have to focus. They mm-hmm. a lot of people want to do a lot of things with their dogs and the concern and the thing I see as an evaluator or just traveling around is we have these dogs that are jacks of all trades but masters at none. And to though we can do it and though you have a dog that can do, you know, a couple different things, your time gets spread across these things or on the cognitive side, the dog's memory has, let's say, extensive time in data collected on one cent discipline, such as sport where they started. And all of a sudden now, just like you brought up the context in the area in which the dog has to work in the level of distractors and all these new things that exist on now in a professional scale is drastically different. But, and, and then there's these struggles they go through as when working their dogs and they want the help. And all we end up doing is chasing problems. And one of those problems that we chase is stop doing so many different things and think that you're going to do now this important job really good versus keep your, let's say your one dog that you started this path with in detection, which is amazing. That dog taught you a lot of things, put you experiences. But now that you're moving up to that new level or doing something different, take a different dog and use that dog to do that. Because I always ask the question when I go to my seminars and classes, how many just have one dog? And there might be two people in a room of 30 that have one dog. So most of us passionate dog people have multiple dogs. So with all that said, it's, you know, we, we have to, and I know this is more common in Europe and other places where dogs are much more specialty oriented versus, oh, my dog's a drug dog, a bomb dog, a cadaver dog, a what I like to do everything. It's just all so fun to me. So I want to go do this and go do that and da 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 da. And I, I know just by talking to Jeff on the conservation side, just some of the unique species that they have to detect and then the commonality to another species that's only very, like very minorly different, but the dog has to know which one it is, not overly yeah. generalized. And, and Jeff, I'll let you kind of speak on that. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very unique. Here's what's unique for a lot of the dogs in the States. You know, knock out the ones that do an endangered species that is always too Ill- illegal to possess. But, you know, many of our species, it's unlike narcotics work, it's not always inherently illegal to possess. It's only illegal to possess if you've killed it illegally or if it's out of season. You know, so it's, you know, with our job, it's a, it's a little different with our detection work because, again, it's not, depending on the time of year, it may be legal, it may not be illegal. And, you know, here in the States, you know, obviously we have to follow you know, all of our Supreme Court laws, case laws, you know, so it presents a different challenge from a lot of dog handlers, you know, in that are in traditional law enforcement. Yeah. No, yeah. Right. I think that's really interesting as well. Just, just going back to something you were saying then before that, Cameron, as well. It, it came up in my last uh, or a previous episode with a scientist over here called Nick Ratter. We always think about, you know, training the dog for a very specific species or a very specific scent or, or, or even an individual 
yeah, animal. But he was actually talking about the benefits of generalization, particularly when you're dealing with endangered species, that if you're able to get a dog to generalize off one that's actually easier to train the dog on, so one that's less endangered than another one, but if you can generalize across the two species, then from a conservation perspective, that's uh, quite useful. So I agree entirely with what you're saying, Cameron, that you know, you, it's very. There's so many different things we can work with the dogs for that we we can end up giving them too many jobs to do. Mm-hmm. You know, if you want them to be specific for one thing, general for another thing, this that, and the other, it's yeah, it's very hard to. I think really. I mean, for a take for for example, a dog that's come from the sport world, done an awful lot, been trained intensely to do systematic searches. For example, coming to the conservation dog, yeah, in the conservation world, most of the time you're not working like that. You mm-hmm. know, you're, you're teaching the dog to back their nose and not worry too much about the the protocol that you've built into them. You're saying, no, if you, if you get something, you know, off you go, left field, go yep. for it, go and find it. And, uh, and you want them to be that little bit wild, that little bit uncontrolled and un- unrestrained mm-hmm. to go and trust themselves and back themselves to find what you're looking for. Because you're looking for complex things in big areas, in challenging terrain. You know, it's, uh, it's a different animal. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, and, and it's you brought up a really good point, which is I, I definitely get the generalization aspect in the conservation side of things because I agree that is important and it allows you to investigate things further. Uh, let's just say in a, a dog that comes from a totally different odor subset, whether it be, let's say, I don't know, sport or narcotic or whatever it is, because I've seen on the law enforcement side of things, some agencies in, in the past, I don't see it as frequently as I used to, but they'll because of that game warden or, uh, you know, conservation officer has been tasked with be doing that as their primary duty, but narcotics is also another issue. So they've had this dog that's trained in narcotics also go find a other species. And depending on where they're at in the United States, they're going to say that's perfectly acceptable. However, mm. there's numerous pitfalls to that legally and getting that information out there is yep. extremely important and, and and why we don't want to do that. So, yeah, we – again, as information is shared, we have to have open discussions kind of like this to say, okay, what's our objective and what is the plus and minus of this dog or this dog team doing this skill set? And then, then the other characteristic you brought up is – in one aspect, the dog is so used to being, like you said, a more of a detailed type searcher, searching smaller spaces to all of a sudden have acreage and have to really use the airborne scent to go follow and, and understand yeah. thermal shifts and all kinds of stuff that happens out there in the outside world. Uh, and, uh, I say out in the wild, for lack of a better term, yeah. <laughs> uh, dealing with weather conditions, scat of all different types. I mean, you name it. I That's one of the things I look at in the conservation world that makes life so much harder. It's not finding the odors. It's dealing with all of the distractors and proofing mm. things. And there's so much more work there on, on working on that side of the equation than there is just doing the odors. To me, the odors is the easy part. And I'll let, you know, uh, Jeff or whoever want to, you know, Jeff or you to, to discuss that further. But I think that's a, a significant portion to deal with that most all other odor detection disciplines don't have to deal with at that same kind of level. 
Yeah, I think I think it's an interesting point, and I'd be interested in your views on this, Jeff. But I mean, so if I look at the work that I do, for example, so fox dens. So if I'm training a new dog on fox dens, now fox is only den once a year. So there's only kind of once a year for a few months when I can actually train the dogs on a real life scenario. Because over here, I mean, you know, Louise suggested to me, well, maybe I should have some captive foxes somewhere, but you know, the biosecurity rules over here mm-hmm. are probably less than likely to allow that. Um, yeah. And so there's, there's, there's a situation where I've got to try and train a fresh dog on a simulation. And, and obviously that presents a lot of concerns for me around whether, you know, because I'm training them on something different, and I, and I, and I would typically train my dogs on them, and I'll... I'll I'll catch foxes during the season, I'll take the tail, I'll freeze it, I'll use it, you know, and I'll go and stick it in in holes, you know, around the place um, as an approximation. But that's the closest I can really get to the actual real-life odour. So so there are some, there are certainly some challenges. I mean, scat detection is arguably pretty easy because you find the scat and then you can try, you can take the scat to places, you can move it around, you can train them on it, and obviously scat is a very useful thing from a scientific perspective because it carries so much information. But if you're looking for the live animal or or resting place, denning place or anything like that, it does present a lot more challenges. What do you think, Jeff? Oh, absolutely. And this has been mentioned on your podcast numerous times. For some of these species, getting the samples to train on could be half of the battle. Oh, yeah. You know, you know, with with my work in law enforcement, you know, typically – you know, I'm not looking for the live species. You know, we're looking for the one that has already been poached, you know. Mm-hmm. So I don't have quite some of the same challenges that that other conservation dogs have. Yeah, it's, it's, interesting, it's interesting you say that, though, because um, I was thinking, just thinking back to our first episode with Benny Van Zyl out in Africa. And we had, I had the same conversation with him, and yeah, he found it very hard. They, they tried very hard to train their dogs to detect yeah, ammunition or gunpowder or, or that sort of scent because they wanted to get to the poachers before they actually killed anything. You know, finding finding the dead animal, you know, was less less important to them because then the poaching's already happened. Right, right. And and that's where, you know, man tracking is at least the states that have come here and trained with our department. You know, man tracking is our number one focus it's our number one use that's what we get called for more than anything is to track the person that is trespassing or or hunting out of season and catch them before they end up killing the animal you know Mm -hmm. so tracking is is kind of what what i focus on in the states that have come here to indiana to train you know that's what they learn here is track the guy before it happens yeah i think that's great I just want to take a quick second and welcome to our show, one of the new sponsors here at Canines Talking Sense. It's an application for your phone called Search Dog Timer or SDT. You can find Search Dog Timer currently on the Apple App Store. It's not yet out on Google, but if you have an iPhone, you're good to go. What this app does, it allows you to take a picture of your search area. And in that search area, you can place up to four icons or four markers where your odor is at and what the odor is. And as your dog searches, you can just tap the button 
on your screen when the dog makes a find and it gives you a timestamp of when the dog has located that target odor. What's unique about this is it gives you information on search duration. How long did it take your dog to go from beginning its search to making the first find, uh, going from that find to the next find, and it lays it out nicely on a photo. And when you've completed your search and you hit complete, it becomes a photo in your photo reel where it shows you where uh, your, your hides are at and when your dog actually found those specific hides. So it's a fun little app to kind of use and to document your search duration and search times. And again, you can find this on the Apple App Store called Search Dog Timer SDT. And we hope you like it. I know the developer of this app would love your guys' feedback, input. Uh, as with any app, they're always able to update, uh, make changes, uh, you know, do things that we're looking for as end users. So again, I hope you guys enjoy it. Go check out the Search Dog Timer app on the Apple App Store. Canine's Talking Sense webinars. You have heard from many of our guests. Well, now many of them are offering numerous webinars through our webinar platform on the Ford Canine website. All webinars can be purchased for $25 each, or you can join the Ford Canine Club channel and get two webinars a month for $25. Ford Canine Club channel always has one new webinar as well as one of the episodes from the past so you can enjoy again. Go to www.fordcanine.com slash webinar. Are you looking to become a trainer in sport detection? Ford Canine now offers the CSDT Certified Sport Detection Dog Trainer Level 1 and 2. Each course is a one-week immersive course to help you in learning sport dog scent detection. No matter what sport program you choose, our class can help you and your future students have fun and enjoy the world of canine scent detection sports. Not only do we help you learn the training aspect for dogs and handlers, but we also cover import aspects to help you grow and market your current dog training business by now offering this new service of scent detection to your clients. For more information and to see upcoming classes for the rest of 2020, go to www.fordk9.com and click on the Courses tab. Show your support for Canine's Talking Sense podcast and Detection Dog Pride. Go visit our new online store where we offer all kinds of hats, shirts, mugs, detection dog tools, and much more. Go to www.fordk9.com and click on the online store and get your new canine gear. Do not forget to check out our store often as we add new products every month. Are you looking for quality detection dog training equipment? We have a variety of items on our website at FordCanine.com. We have the glass jars. We have the odor shaker cans. We have magnetic boxes to hold your odors in. We also are a vendor for the portable scent wheel that's made by Pat Nolan at TacticalDirectionalCanine.com. This portable scent wheel is made of stainless steel. It has six arms and folds up to where you can carry it in a bag and take it with you virtually anywhere. There isn't a device out there like that, especially when it comes to wheels that is that portable and that easy to use. So 
you can order that wheel from us or go visit Pat Nolan's website, tacticaldirectionalk9.com. Or like I said, go to FordK9.com, go to our online store, and look at any of the variety of detection-related equipment items that we offer for sale. Again, we offer this for any of our students that come here, but you don't have to be a student in order to get these items. Just go to our website, check it out, FordK9.com. In respect to dealing with the odor aspect of this, what would you say, Jeff, is one of the most difficult things to deal with as a conservation officer and somebody just in general, whether it be civilian or law enforcement, dealing with in detection? Well, with detection, and, and it depends on what we're detecting, but in general, a lot of our stuff that we are detecting are animals, the dog. So the biggest thing may be different than narcotics, different than explosives. The dog, it's food. The dog wants to eat it. You know, it wasn't a problem when everyone was still doing aggressive alert, but with passive alert, which everyone is doing now, including us, the dog still at times wants to eat the sample because it is meat, <laughs> you know, with their, their canine you know, uh, they want to eat it. So that is one of the challenges teaching the dog. Okay. Smell it, but you cannot eat it. You know, you have to give us your nice passive alert. So that is a different challenge for detection wise than, than other disciplines of detection. And how do you deal with that? How, what's one of the techniques you use to kind of inhibit that dog from eating the sample that might be already very difficult to obtain in the first place? Well, most of ours are not difficult to obtain, you know, in the, in training, uh, you know, as well as I do, we can keep it to where they cannot get to it in, in an actual work scenario, depending on the dog, would they, you know, try to take a bite? I guess it depends on the dog and the training. You know, we have not had an issue other than we have dogs and you actually seen it when you were here for the virtual workshop. One of the dogs was licking the canister mm-hmm. <laughs> because of the, the venison that was in there. Yeah. And that is normally a very passive alert dog that has never done that before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Till that day. So, but we just have to work through it in training, you know, to, uh, you know, to not reward that behavior. So it's usually like a barrier of some type that kind of prevents the dog from basically eating it. And with that barrier creates that that delay that you need to build that alert, correct? Correct. Yeah. The And it's a catch-22 because, like you said, these are animals that they're typically detecting, and that makes it, in some cases, easier work. You know, it's natural for them to be inquisitive about it. And then the flip side of that equation is because they're naturally inquisitive about it and it's interesting to them, they either want to eat it or roll in it. <laughs> so... You know, one of the things that, you know, it's that true double-edged sword. It's, yes, my dogs can find this stuff pretty easily. However, here are the negatives that come with that ease. Is that something, James, that you've also seen with what you guys do in Australia? Yeah, yeah. It's always a big challenge over here. I mean, particularly with a lot of projects, um, particularly endangered species-related projects, there's a lot of concern around the use of dogs. And if they decide to... uh, 
to take a small chomp out of a an animal where there's only a hundred of them left in the world or something that's a pretty uh it's a pretty bad thing so oftentimes you know we are we are required you know to have the dogs muzzled operationally anyway and and that's the same in New Zealand as well for a lot of their endangered species so that sort of partly takes some of the the training need you know out of that but uh but but generally yeah i mean i agree i, I mean whenever i'm shaping an indication and so on i, I try and make sure that the dog is not interacting you know with the target it's, it's slightly easier from my perspective I'm, if i'm just looking for a big hole a big smelly hole in the ground then it's a bit easier but often over here the fox dens if they've been vacated or if they're not used this year they can be home to native animals they can be home to very 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 dangerous snakes and things like that. So you don't really want your dog going and sticking his head too far down there. Plenty of stories from colleagues I've heard where dogs have uh, unfortunately died because they've been bitten on the nose, you know, by uh, an eastern brown snake or a tiger snake or or something like that. And these are the these are the snakes. These are you know, up there in the top, you know, five most venomous snakes in the world. And so it's it's a concern like when you're out there working. You know how I mean, if you're in the back of beyond, a long way from a vet, you know, how are you going to be able to get your dog out in time to try and rescue it from that? Sometimes you, you know you just can't. The logistics of the situation don't work. So, so trying to teach your dog to actually maintain the distance, that distance is quite important um, oh, yeah. over here in that context. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, that's the thing about I look at as Australia. There's a lot of things trying to kill you, and they're all small. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a there's some big ones. Small. Yeah. There's some big ones. You know, I'll give a crocodile there. Those are big. Great white shark. Yep, big. But damn, everything if it crawls, slithers or whatever, it's trying to kill a person. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, there's some work that uh, we've got coming up, for example, with my team that um, is up in croc country. So it's north of this, about 600 miles north of where I am now. So getting into croc country. These are the big saltwater crocs. You know, these are these are not little, little fellas. You know, these are the these are the three, four, five meter long, mm-hmm. you know, ones. And, and we've got to do, um, go out there to do some turtle protection work. Mm-hmm. So finding the fox dens to, to reduce the turtle predation. So we're working, you know, right on the, on the edge of the coast there. And yeah. So, so the, I mean, there's snakes, there's, you know, there, there's crocodiles, there's all manner of risk, um, in a lot of the operational work that we do, but, but also with Australia is, is such a diverse uh, country environmentally mm-hmm. that your dog needs to be able to work effectively in rainforest as it does in arid, you know, very uh, yeah, conditions, uh, arid, sandy conditions, and cold conditions, and everything else. Mm-hmm. And so, from an environmental context, it's pretty uh, it's pretty challenging to get a dog that yeah you know, that can happily work in all of those different you know, different situations. Yeah, let alone the weather conditions. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, we we typically work over here. I mean, I'll I'll normally go out first light, um, mm-hmm. start then finish generally around. Yeah, you know, and this is. I mean, obviously not in the heat of summer because then it's just too much, but we'll generally look to finish by about 10.30 or 11 a.m. Um, uh, just because it's too much. <laughs> I was saying, I know in, in Jeff's world, you know, it, it can, I mean, the weather conditions can change, can change so drastically. And then, you know, the critters he deals with, at least most times you can see some of them coming, but, you know, I know they deal with, you know, the snakes and some of the other hazards that are in there. What, what would you say, uh, Jeff, is... You know, as a conservation handler, what are the things that you guys are really paying attention to out there while you're working and deploying your dog? 
Well, you know, here in the U.S., obviously, we're so diverse. You know, uh, here in Indiana, we don't have many of the big critters, bears and cougars, that will get you or wolves. Here in Indiana, it's the ticks and the spiders <laughs> that will get you. <laughs> uh, well, and, and a handful of snakes. You know, we have rattlesnakes in various areas and, and definitely copperheads mm-hmm. uh, is probably our primary poisonous snake. You know, the guys from out west that come to Indiana – for training, ticks is what they're scared of. They're like, mm. let cougars track me down. I can deal with those. I cannot deal with ticks that I can't see. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, oh yeah, yeah. T- know, t- so ticks that, are a terrible thing. Yeah, terrible thing. I mean, we we get a lot of instances of Lyme disease over here. You know, which is quite a nasty, you know, tick-borne illness. It's one of those ones. I don't know whether you guys get it over there, but it's, it's, oh, uh, yeah. it really knocks people off their feet for for a long, long time. Yeah, yeah. Lyme disease very prevalent in my part of the state, or mm. kind of, well, my part of the country, very prevalent. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, so what do what do your handlers do? So, I mean, how do you try and protect against that? Uh, for the most part, you know the you know use permethium or permethion, yep. you know, on yep. the clothes. Uh, of course, our department allows us in our field uniforms to blouse our boots. Uh, mm-hmm which makes a huge difference depending on how you blouse your boots uh, or your pants. But I very seldom, you know, will find a tick attached on me, you know, using the, the treatments on the clothes. And that really helps out. And then, of course, obviously, you know, our canines have to be, you know, have their tick and flea preventatives up to date, which is very important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so, so same over here. So, so it's the same principles, same practices. <laughs> yeah. Now I I'll bring this back to kind of how we started. What and and again it goes to both of you, but I'll start with you, Jeff. What areas? Because so research has grown quite a bit, and there's been a lot of focus on anti-terrorism, narcotic, and so on and so forth. But what are some of the things that you see that are valuable to the conservation canine community? that we need more research on or we need more information on. I know Paul Bunker, he's been doing a lot of good stuff on the research side of things with Nathan Hall and some others, and they are really working on environmental uh, aspects as well. But I would like, I would love to hear from, from you guys as a point of view as handlers and trainers with some stuff that you guys are like, I I wish we knew more about that. You know, this kind of came up at that hybrid conference back in March when you were here. You know, Working Dogs for Conservation has done some research on getting all the way down to the specific species, but I'm not sure that that's a documented, you know, research. You know, so I would like to to see one of the universities put together something that says, yes, a white crappie, and this is just an example of something common, but a white crappie is definitely genetically different than a black crappie. But you name your species of wildlife, but something that is, you know, very, very closely related, you know, I would like to see that in research documented that, yes, they are completely different and a dog can hit a black crappie and not a white crappie. And I'm just using that as an example of a species of fish that is commonly overbagged in Indiana, you know, but, you know, it could be any, any species you know, of wildlife. But I would like to see that documentation, you know, in a clinical research and published, you know, to say, yes, this 
this is what it is. What about James? What about you guys? What do you guys see in Australia? What's something that would be really helpful looking at on the research side of things? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, slightly on the other side of the coin, I mean, I, I entirely agree with Jeff on what he's saying. I'd like to see more work on handler skills, you know, how you can actually make that team work more effective because I sometimes feel like I'm, I'm a bit of an interested observer when I'm watching my dogs work. I'm not convinced sometimes I'm adding an awful lot of value, <laughs> you know, to, to the team, particularly in the search context. And so I think, you know, handler skills, you know, and, and research around what, you know, what things can we do as handlers that will make our dogs lives easier quicker put them at less risk when they're working you know all of that sort of stuff i think would be you know be a really interesting thing for somebody to look into and i was gonna say that's one of the best things i get to go do with the cognition stuff is because it really helps the handler so much of Mm. what we when we do these cognitive tests it tells us more about that dog but by knowing more about that dog, I know better what to do as a handler or I know better how not to spin my wheels on something for a while. Yeah. And that creates an efficiency to training, which makes us you know, better as handlers, better as trainers to make that dog's life easier in the sense of what we're communicating, how we're communicating it, and then how that dog learns. Is this a memory dog or is this an inference dog? And mm. knowing that is super helpful in how we train, you know, do I need to change the context frequently or do I need to be very careful about what I do? You know, I I love doing what I call handler trap exercises. And with the handler trap stuff, it's not so much handler errors that we're dealing with. It's more or less how sometimes your dog can suck you into doing something because of what you thought was happening. And because of a reinforcement schedule, a dog's like, well, I know you like it when I do this, so I'll keep doing that. And, you know, sometimes it perpetuates a cycle where we see handler errors keep happening. So that you're right. That's one area. And I'm glad to say that there is good research on that and it's getting more in depth all the way down to puppies now. But you guys are right that, you know, we, we get so focused on training of dogs that the human end of the leash is the part that's the most fallible and it's the most ignorant. <laughs> and yeah, and we have to address yeah, that. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, there, there's been numerous occasions when I've seen uh, just uh, you know, dogs deployed operationally, you know, um, from the wrong direction, for example. So they're, they're being you know, deployed you know, downwind or whatever. You know, it just there's a little bit of thinking, a little bit more awareness, you know, on the part of the handlers, you know, can go an awful long way to making everything a lot slicker, a lot better, a lot, you know, just a bit more prep work and that sort of thing. And that's not just the training of the dog, you know, it's, it's the training of the handlers. And, and and I agree with you. I think the, you know, we're, we're arguably the weakest link, you know, mm-hmm. in the, in, in the team at the moment. Yeah. I've, I've always said, I kind of start my classes training your dogs is the easy part me training you guys or gals is the most difficult part. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's right. I think that's right. So, so, so I've got a question actually for both of you, which I thought would be interesting. So when you look at conservation, you know, dog world, we're quite often doing long, long searches in very, very difficult conditions without that many wins for the dog. So how would you both kind of go about training a dog to maintain its drive, you know, in, in that kind of context? How would you go about that, Jeff? As far as maintaining the drive, well, hopefully dog selection, you you have 
the dog for that drive. You know, depending on what part of the country the dog's working, you know, there's been a huge shift going to German short hair pointers in mm-hmm. even in the conservation law enforcement world, you know, and a lot of it is because of their endurance. And I'll just speak from my experience. They do handle the heat a little bit better than most Labrador retrievers that, that we typically use here, here in Indiana. And we're kind of almost we're a mixed bag now, Labrador retrievers and German short hairs. But it's just like all other training, you know, building the the endurance of the long searches. You know, mm-hmm. having, you know, even though let's say it's a training exercise and you put the hide out, you know, you start five acres away from where the hide's even at, you know, so you know yeah. the dog's gonna search at least 30, 40 minutes before you even get to the area. To where the hide's at you know so so building that into your training is the way that that i typically do it yeah what do you think cameron yeah no i agree the physical the physical fitness of the dog is instrumental in its success to be able to work long periods of time just mm-hmm. like us if we fatigue quickly we want out you know it's yeah we, we want to quit whatever makes this end let's just stop it you know and a dog is no different, whether it's shade seeking or knowing that they get their reinforcement item, they're bound to the game ends kind of thing. So if yeah. I'm tired, I offer this behavior, will I get paid? Um, so not only that, but uh, interesting enough, myself and Nathan Hall are doing a research project on search longevity. And basically, oh, yeah. can we create a signal that you know, lack of better terms, reinvigorates the dog to continue longer. Yeah, recharges them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So kind of like a, uh, a a security person at the airport reviewing the computer screen, looking at bags, they know that they basically go, you know, blind to details after 25, 30 minutes of looking at a screen for so long. So mm-hmm. we have tried, or, and Nathan's in the middle of this now, when do dogs typically start showing nose blind, you know, or do they, when do they get fatigued with this exercise of detection and where, so, cause if you ask handlers, what's your dog's average effective search time? Well, there's, there's factors that go into that answer, but you'll hear answers from half hour to 45 minutes to an hour, whatever, you know, there's a lot of, like I said, factors that affect that answer. However, you could have a hunter go out with his hunting dog and go for hours. And Mm. it's still kind of doing a similar aspect. It's looking and searching for something, but it can do it in outdoor conditions and running a lot of times full speed and do it over and over again. What's the difference? Well, there's a genetic aspect to this, of course, like Jeff mentioned, the types of breeds and how they can do things. But when it's detection and it's a handler, all of a sudden we change. So the research that we're looking at is, you know, what is the effective time frame before the dog, for lack of a better term, goes nose blind or becomes more inefficient than efficient? And then two, can we create a signal that reinvigorates that dog to work again for longer? You know, and, and coming from the special forces community, we know when we push ourselves, you know, we think we're done. And one of the biggest things that's pushed is keep going. You think you're done, but you're really only about 40% of what you still have left. There's still 60% more in that tank. You just want to quit now. 
And once you learn to get past that barrier in your mind, you can keep going. And then it's not as a big deal. Well, it's a lot of things I talk about with dogs as I talk about nose calluses. You know, when we work out, we build calluses on our hands we and we get those calluses by going through some tough things and getting better. And those things aren't as scary anymore. Well, with dogs, we need to build those nose calluses so that way we can keep that dog pushing through some tougher times, whether it be environmental, search duration, things of that nature. But the biggest problem that prevents a dog from getting good nose calluses is that handler who wants to stop that dog because they become apomorphic looking at their dog going, oh, my dog's probably tired. Oh, look, its tongue's hanging Mm -hmm. out some. Uh, We should probably stop now. I guarantee, again, comparing worlds, and and, and this is a world that Jeff's really in tune with, the hunting dog world. They don't give breaks necessarily. Those dogs work. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's absolutely right. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting thing, um, but I'm I'm delighted that uh, you and Nathan are uh, looking at that. Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, space to be in. I'm conscious of time, guys. We're yeah. nearly out of time, so I wanted to touch on the Conservation Canine Officers Association, which is newly formed and which the boat that parents were doing a workshop on recently. So, can you tell me a little bit about that, Jeff? Well, it's kind of every state was kind of doing their own thing. And, you know, this all came about because of Working Dogs for Conservation. They reached out to Lauren Went, who at that point was a Washington Fish and Wildlife Officer detective with a canine, which Working Dogs actually trained her dog that was working for Washington. In the meantime, they wanted to get, you know, these states to kind of bond together and, and get on the same page for, to a certain degree. And so Lauren reached out to me. And that's kind of how it started. We actually had kind of a foundation meeting down in Yulee, Florida to kind of form together the association. Uh, There was definitely a lot learned there. You know, all 31 states were kind of doing their own thing. You know, so we kind of decided, hey, you know, we need this. And part of it was because of certifications. You know, right now, um, every agency is certifying their dogs in a different form or fashion and we're seeking seeking out you know name the association i won't name any but they are doing wildlife detection now but your certifiers or judges don't know how a game warden conservation officer how we work how we deploy our dogs you know so we thought well this is what we really need is an association you know to where we can provide some more professionalism to an association, to certifications, you know, knowing, you know, how game wardens, conservation officers, you know, work their dogs and what we're looking for when we do. So that's, that's kind of the founding part of it. We have some big aspirations. It's on down the line. It's going to be a while before we're even a certifying agency or association, but, you know, we do plan on bringing in you know, right now it's just open to North America and law enforcement, but we plan on doing an associate membership to where we'll eventually bring in, you know, regular, bring in other conservation dogs, whether they're doing invasive species research or something like that, or at least to attend our conference on the days that is non-law enforcement related. For example, if Cameron comes in with canine cognition, you know, for a day. And then we have another, you know, non-law enforcement topic that day. 
associate members would be allowed to attend the conference that day. So they get the learning along with us. So we have aspirations of really growing basically to worldwide, you know, because in Africa, we have a lot of law enforcement in, on the continent of Africa that are, are using yeah. dogs for anti-poaching. And, you know, we eventually want to get there because right now they're all training with the American Society of Canine Trainers, which again is, mm -hmm. you know, not conservation specific. So yeah. that's our aspirations. Is that going to happen overnight? Absolutely not. <laughs> right now, <laughs> right now we're working on the law enforcement side, you know, basically here in North America, which includes Canada, because we do have some members from Canada. But we we do plan on branching out, but we, you know, because of COVID, it's delayed a couple of our conferences. We are on for September. Looks like we're going to have a good turnout. Uh, already right now, we're at one-fourth of all North American handlers, the conservation handlers that are going to be attending. And I look for that to really grow since we passed July 1st. Now people can turn in their out-of-state travel. So it's we're, we're going to have a great conference here just in a few months to keep the ball yeah. rolling. Oh, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, and uh, definitely once you know, once you're in a position to be able to open that up to associate members and so on, then that'll be a great a great resource. You know, particularly in that conservation you know dog field in North America. There, I think that's uh, be being awesome. Cameron, any thoughts on that? Yeah, no. Uh, I was going to say, Jeff, if you want to let everybody know how to possibly sign up for that conference, where do they go to? Is there a website, email, or what have you? And then it's in French Lake, Indiana, correct? It is going to be in French Lake, Indiana again, uh, at the same place you came, at the French Lake Resort. We do have a Facebook page, which is Conservation Canine Officers Association. Of course, again, right now, it's only for you know sworn fish and wildlife canine handlers, and they've all been notified because we have all their emails. But, you know, for, for all the listeners, you know, stay tuned because, you know, associate memberships coming, you know, I don't know how many years down the line to where they'll be invited, you know, to a day or two of the conference, you know, depending on, on how we grow, but that's where we're at right now. Yeah, no, I, and, and, you know, James, to answer your question, I, I, I'm loving the fact that detection's growing, and I love the fact that conservation is one of the fields that's expanding quite a bit and is becoming very inclusive to both the community of law enforcement and then the community of professionals that come from, let's say, either research or wildlife protection uh, and so forth. Mm. So it, it, it is really a, a great period of time to watch this detection discipline and dogs really help us humans be better with our environment, without a doubt. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself, mate. That's great. Look, I, I hate to cut this short, guys, but we've run out of time due to a couple of technical challenges we had at the start. <laughs> but I feel like we've only scratched the surface on, on all the things we could uh, we could spend time talking about. So uh, I think we probably need to get in a get in a second episode at Absolutely. some point in the future just to uh, just to go into things in a bit more detail. That's great, Cameron. Look, everyone knows you, but do you want to just say how they can keep in touch? with you or keep tabs on what you're working on? Sure. The easiest way, you can go to my website, 
www.fordk9.com. So fordk9.com. There's the link there to the K9's Talking Sense podcast. And as we talk right now, the website's being totally redone. Uh, coming up here in the next few months, there'll be ability to get online videos, online classes, webinars, and then as well as come out here to Vegas, work with me and my staff, or my mobile classroom where I've been very busy. I'm missing out on the uh, conservation conference because I got overbooked without even really realizing it, <laughs> how quickly it ha- happened. But uh, where I travel out to you guys, where I can, you know, uh, not everybody can travel to Vegas. So I put the show on the road and I go out to you guys and we have any number of seminars I do, which is the canine cognition one, which is a very popular one. Uh, along with the handler trap one. And then those that are starting off with new dogs, I have the odor pays one. So yeah. And then on the typical social media, it's either at Cameron Ford canine or at Ford canine. Either one, you'll find me Facebook, Instagram, you name it. It's one of those. Great. Thanks, mate. And for myself, yeah, so if anybody wants to keep tabs on the world of conservation detection, just like, share, subscribe to the Conservation Canine Podcast, wherever you uh, subscribe to your podcasts, and just keep just look us up on Instagram, Twitter, you know, all the usual places like that. Um, but, yeah, as I mentioned previously, we've also got a camp running out here in Australia. So if you're in this part of the world and you're interested in conservation detection, we're running a camp in September in southeast Queensland, which is a bit of an introduction to conservation. It's uh, everybody camping for four days and listening to me crap on. But also I've got some great other presenters that are either going to be there in person or dialing in. We've got Amanda Hancock from over here. We've got Louise Wilson. We've got Heath Smith from, from Rogue Detection Teams. We've got Paul Bunker, who you mentioned previously as well. So, uh, yeah. Great. Thanks, guys. All right. Really appreciate your time, and we'll catch you both soon. Sounds good. Take care, guys. Cheers. Cheers.